Welcome to the Biz News Power Hour. I'm Michael Apple. It's Wednesday, the 9th of March. It's been almost two weeks since the war in Ukraine broke out. Uh, oil and gas prices continue to spike on the news that the United States and UK will ban Russia's imports of the commodity. This, as the West says, it's trying to starve the Russian war machine of its funding, uh, as it's widely acknowledged that uh, economic sanctions, uh, while they work, they can take some time to bite. Our partner, the Financial Times, has more on that uh, oil and gas story. Then editor Alec Hogg spoke to uh, veteran money manager Koki Koeman about how banking stocks have reacted to war in Ukraine. Uh, Alec also touches on disruptive technologies and the possible knock-on effects on financial institutions. Speaking of banks, you'll hear my voice in discussion with advocate Erin Richards. Uh, we have a weekly chat. We are discussing uh, the potential culpability, at least, of financial institutions in this country and, and abroad, considering the millions and billions that flowed through their systems that were all ill-gotten gains, it turns out, and proceeds of crime from the state capture era. Uh, it's part one of that chat with Erin Richards. Don't miss part two, which will be coming out on Thursday. But for now, let's get to your news headlines and market report from Nadia Swat. Rightrock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets means change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Brightrock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Russia's invasion of Ukraine and its impact on the global economy will have a knock-on effect on ESCOM and electricity supply in South Africa. This is according to the Power Utilities Executives. Chief Financial Officer Khalib Kasim said the invasion had led to an escalation in oil and gas prices, which still needs to be factored in by ESCOM. ESCOM regularly makes use of open-cycle gas turbines and burns through diesel to supplement energy supply. Kasim cautioned, however, that from a bottom-line point of view, the power utility can only afford to pay so much for fuel. Kasim said ESCOM was now looking to hedge some of these prices, but if the price of oil is to double as is forecast, then it will impact the amount of energy that ESCOM can produce going forward. He added that ESCOM cannot absorb these additional costs by itself. Changes to South Africa's proposed cannabis laws have been tabled in Parliament, which will enable the government to push ahead with its plan to establish a new industrial sector valued at 28 billion rand a year. Lawmakers hope to pass the amendments to the Cannabis for Private Purposes Bill by the end of April. The move follows an announcement by President Sol Ramaphosa in the latest State of the Nation address that the government was ready to push toward the legalization and regulation of the commercial cannabis industry, which he said could create 130,000 jobs. With the grace period for the renewal of driving licenses expiring at the end of March, hundreds of thousands of motorists are set to be without a valid driving license. The Minister of Transport said that the current backlog of driving license renewals as of 25th of February was 543,807. As a result, the organisation Undoing Tax Abuse has requested the Minister to extend the deadline and adjust regulations covering all driving license cards to extend the renewal dates to 10 years. The group said failing to do so would lead to an even more significant backlog, leading to more motorists driving around with invalid license cards. 
embattled ANC Women's League President Batabile Flamini has been found guilty of perjury. Flamini stood accused of lying under oath during a 2017 inquiry into the social grants debacle, the South African Social Security Agency. The debacle saw millions of grant beneficiaries unsure if they would receive their money. Magistrate Betty Kumalo found that the prosecution had proved its case beyond a reasonable doubt and that the former minister had lied under oath. In the financial news, South African business confidence climbed in the first quarter as the negative impact of the coronavirus pandemic, power cuts and a three-week strike in the steel and engineering industry began to wane. The respite may be temporary, however, because of supply shocks caused by the war in Ukraine. ESA Reserve Bank Governor Lesecha Kanyaho has appointed his deputy, Fundi Chazibana, as CEO of the central bank's financial institution regulator, the Prudential Authority. Chazibana previously worked for National Treasury, the National Energy Regulator of SA, and the IMF before joining the South African Reserve Bank. Her appointment formed part of a rotation of three deputy governors into different portfolios, with effect from 1st of April. Deputy Governor and current Prudential Authority CEO Kuban Naidu will take over the financial stability and currency cluster from fellow Deputy Governor Rashad Kasim. The JSE All Share Index was slightly higher at 72,874. In the currency markets, the rand is slightly stronger against the major currencies at 15 rand 15 to the dollar, 19 rand 93 to the pound, and 16 rand 65 to the euro. Gold is trading at $2,006. A Kruger Rand will put you back around $2,079.40. Brent crude is trading at around $124 a barrel. The Joltec cryptocurrency basket will put you back 706 Rand. And the Premier cryptocurrency is trading at around 634,000 Rand. This daily market report was made just for you by Brightrock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Today is Wednesday, March 9th. And this is your FT News Briefing. The U.S. and U.K. have banned oil and gas imports from Russia, which once again caused prices to spike yesterday. And that could spell bad news for Western economies. If those prices go up, then we have often less money to spend on other goods and services. And that means the economies can fall into recession. Plus, with all this talk about fossil fuels, have we lost sight of a green transition? We'll take a look. I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need. The U.S. and U.K. will no longer bring in Russian oil and gas. The European Union did not follow suit. It relies a lot more on Russian energy than the U.S. and U.K. But the EU did say yesterday it would cut Russian gas imports by two-thirds within a year. The price of oil, which had already been surging, jumped on Tuesday after the U.S. announced the ban. There are now fears of an oil shock stagflation, and even an oil-driven recession, especially in Europe. The FT's economics editor, Chris Giles, has more. Well, it's an unfortunate fact that we still need oil and gas or energy as a whole to produce goods and services, and they're absolutely essential for the production process. So that if those prices go up, then we have often less money to spend on other goods and services, And that means the economies can fall into recession if the price rise is big enough and the countries are consuming countries. So it really hits them really hard. So is this idea of stagflation and oil price driven recessions a done deal? Is there anything that can be done to avoid it? 
Well, it's not a done deal. I think there are some things that we can be hopeful about and then some things we can do about it. Now, it's obviously much, much more acute, the problem for oil-consuming countries. But even there, we should uh, take account of a couple of things. First of all, that uh, European economies, along with the rest of the advanced economies, have been growing very strongly. So it's coming off quite a, a lot of momentum, whatever the hit is going to be. Secondly, we have actually got a lot less of dependence on oil and gas than we used to, certainly in the 1970s. So roughly to produce goods and services now, we need roughly half the amount of oil we needed in the 1970s. So it doesn't have as large of an effect as it did then. And thirdly, I think we are going to see some pretty big policy efforts made by governments and central banks, but mostly by governments to try and shield consumers a little bit from the rise in energy prices. Just want to follow up with something that our colleague Derek Brower told us yesterday. We're on a fossil fuel binge. How does that square with what you're saying about using oil more efficiently? Unfortunately, it does square. It is just that the global economy is far, far larger than it was in the 1970s. So even though we're much better at using oil and gas, we are still using a huge amount of it. So Chris, is there anything in your conversations with economists or anything that you were doing while you're researching this story that really stuck out to you? Yes, a few things. One is the refugee crisis from Ukraine, and the numbers are going to be, already are extraordinary, are going to be absolutely extraordinary. So long as European countries and the EU has said that Ukrainians can work, it does seem as if we might be able to absorb them into the labour markets and make their lives better rather faster than we did in the Syrian crisis. With this influx of of, uh, refugees into the rest of Europe, what does that mean a uh, bigger picture for for the macroeconomic side of things? Well, I think it means ultimately that some of the financial burden of refugees will be much lower if they can find jobs themselves. What it really means ultimately for the macro picture, inflation, recessions and all of that is probably minor because the numbers still are small relative to the size of the economies. But what it does mean is that if people do work, it means that they not only bring extra demand, but also extra supply. So that should balance out in the sort of growth inflation trade. So it does ameliorate some of the stag part of the stagflation story that we were talking about. Chris Giles is the FT's economics editor. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Mark. Now, there's been a lot of focus on fossil fuels since Russia invaded Ukraine. That's because as the West cuts energy ties with Russia, they've looked for more alternatives. And more oil has been released into the system to try and offset the higher prices Chris was just talking about. And there's been some thought that this moment might stall the global transition to greener energies. The FT's environment and clean energy correspondent Leslie Hook says you really have to go back to last year to truly understand what's going on. What we saw happen in 2021 was that actually global emissions hit a historic high. So even though at the same time as you had COP26, you had all these net zero pledges, 
2021 saw global emissions of carbon dioxide from energy reach a new high. And that's according to data that was just published by the International Energy Agency uh, with some new analysis that they'd done. So when the world recovered from the COVID-19 pandemic, it was very much turning to fossil fuels and particularly coal to contribute to economic growth, get the lights back on. Felt like the energy transition went into reverse last year if we just look at what was actually happening on the ground. Now, Lizzie, some governments are using the war in Ukraine as an opportunity to push toward clean energy. How come? Well, in Europe, we have seen in particular a huge surge of focus, uh, money, attention on boosting clean energy as a way to reduce reliance on Russian energy imports. So there's certainly a feeling across Europe that this is the moment to boost renewables in order to reduce Putin's control over the continent. That said, it's very hard to do that immediately. You can't just snap your fingers and have a wind farm pop up. It takes time. So in the short term, it looks like Europe may be burning more coal, uh, but in the long term, probably accelerating the transition. Now, we're focusing a lot of our conversation on Europe and Russia, and, you know, we should. But what about China? Uh, They use a lot of fossil fuels. How do they play into this whole green transition that we're talking about here? Well, that's really interesting. And and one thing we don't know yet is what Beijing's position on the war in Ukraine really is. China does import some energy from Russia. They have one gas pipeline, but it's not actually a lot. They're more likely to be impacted by the extremely high prices globally for oil and gas. And China, of course, is a net energy importer. Um, Typically, when China experiences energy shock, its response is to burn more coal. So as oil and gas prices rise, we are likely to see China turn back to coal, which it can produce domestically to keep power stations going. So bottom line, Leslie, has the green transition been derailed? Uh, How would you characterize it? I think the war in Ukraine could really shift government thinking about fossil fuels. It's going to start to change consumer behavior. I mean, driving a gasoline-burning car is going to become really expensive. So I think that we're only two weeks into the war. It's still playing out. But I, I think maybe it could ultimately help speed up the energy transition. Leslie Hook is the FT's environment and clean energy correspondent. Tens of thousands of Russians are fleeing their country as the war in Ukraine intensifies. They're leaving for a number of reasons, from the economic fallout due to Western sanctions to the Kremlin's crackdown on dissent. Almost all European airspace is closed to Russian aircraft, so people are flying to places like Israel, Turkey, and Georgia. Flights to these places have been sold out for days. Now, if Russians stay in the places they're immigrating to, it could be really bad for Russia. Analysts say losing a good chunk of the population could cause significant damage to an economy already hit by Western sanctions. And before we go, along with people, Western brands are, of course, fleeing Russia. And yesterday, it was a lot of food and beverage companies that announced their departure. Starbucks, Pepsi, Coca-Cola, they all said they were suspending activity in Russia 
So did McDonald's. The Golden Arches will temporarily close all 850 of its restaurants. McDonald's CEO Chris Kamchimsky cited supply chain disruptions as well as the humanitarian crisis in Ukraine, and he said it was impossible to predict when they would reopen. McDonald's has 62,000 employees in Russia. The company said it will continue to pay them. Corky Coyman from Denka Capital uh, is our go-to man on anything to do with banking. But we're going to have an unusual discussion today, Corky, where we'll also be talking a bit about the blockchain and decentralized finance, DeFi. But let's start off with Ukraine. You didn't foresee it. I don't know um, whether your investors are now complaining that uh, you didn't see what perhaps you should have. Uh, yeah, it's one of those things you replay it in your mind the whole time as, as an investor and as a portfolio manager. And, you know, the signs were there the whole time. We actually liked Russia because of what it was doing to its balance sheet. But what one didn't see, it was actually preparing for war. Yeah, uh, the, since 2014, Putin had been making his, his economy and his balance sheet sanction-proof and building up reserves. Well, funny enough, the reserves in the end didn't help him and he, and he did miscalculations. But as a portfolio manager, one just learns each time again, you know, the true buildup, we all believed him, saying that, you know, he, he just wants its exercises and we thought maybe it's just, you know, the two provinces. Any case, what we did do is fortunately towards the end of last year when Tinkoff and Spurbank got fairly expensive, or Tinkoff specifically, we started reducing that. Um, and when when it looked as if it was going to invade and it did invade, we immediately sold the remaining spur banks. Uh, but still, it, it's the whole region has taken an enormous club, to put it in that terms. Uh, yeah, uh, the EU banks, European banks are down 20% because almost every bank has some exposure and the insurers have some exposure to Russia, even just indirectly. Most like ING, 0.8%. But the fear suddenly in that region is that European the ECB won't hike interest rates for a while, that they might prevent the banks from buying back shares, which everybody had bargained on. So um, interesting in terms of our investors, we've been communicating with our investors as much as we can. Our, our Russian exposure at, at the point of when, when the markets were closed is 0.2% in the fund. So that was very small. And we've actually had small inflows. I think investors are starting to learn that even if you've got a crisis wrong when it happens, when it has happened and share prices go 20% down, it's time to rather buy than sell. But Alec, the, the big debate we had in the team was, one, do you now sell European banks? and by, let's say, Brazilian banks or Indonesian banks. Get away from Europe, in other words. Well, get away from Europe. And then if this is a structural change and we're seeing higher commodity prices and higher food prices for three years, countries like Indonesia and Brazil actually benefit. And Indonesia is a big coal exporter, big palm oil exporter. It's actually, in terms of oil, it's, it's neutral. But the European bank shares had fallen so much. Uh, you know, ING yesterday was back on a dividend yield of 10%. Yeah, so just explain half. that, nice and simple, 10%. So in other words, you invest in it today, as long as their profits remain the same amount, you get a 10% yield, which is a heck of a lot more exactly. than you get in interest. In cash, in cash. Okay, there's obviously the tax on that. So it makes it after tax a 7.5% 
yield, which is still very good. And our prognosis is that you know, Europe will grow after this. And so that in five years' time, that 7.5% of today's or yesterday's price grows to about 10, 11%. So, yeah, so, so bank shares and insurers in Europe have just fallen to levels where you said, you know, you can't sell. What you could do maybe, and we did a bit of that, is a share, there are two shares in Austria, Raffaison and Erstebank. Uh, Raffaison has 30% of its operations in Ukraine and Russia. They're ring-fenced in terms of capital and systems, but so 30% of your business is there. And Erste have got no business in. Uh, so, but the prices have almost fallen the same. And you say, okay, and we sold some Raffaison and we bought Erste. It seems overnight now, uh, this morning, that the likelihood is increasing that there will first be a ceasefire and talks. And I'm not, not sure if, if investors have looked yet, but European share prices started rebounding yesterday. And today, both Raffaison and Erste up 11%. <laughs> so obviously, that's always what happens in a crisis. The markets first, because there's no information, assume the worst. And then as information becomes available, it starts pricing more accurately. And in this case, obviously, if the war was to end now where it is, and you start talking, you know, then there's a lot of mispricing because of the fears were, even in terms of does he invade the Baltics next? Does he go into Georgia next? Yeah, so the market is now starting to say, well, maybe he's learned and he won't do that. Corky, I had an interesting chat yesterday with Sean Pesh, who I'm sure you recall. He's been in the UK for 20-odd hmm, years. But he, he had a theory. He said that from what his gut is telling him, and it's only a theory, it's no inside track, it appears as though what Russia wants from the peace talks is likely to be acceptable to Ukraine i.e. Ukraine says we're not going to join NATO, which is not a big deal because NATO hasn't exactly defended them. And on the other hand, Russia says you give us the the region in eastern uh, Ukraine where it is a dominant Russian-speaking people and they are allowed to join Russia. So that seems to be on the table. And what Sean was saying was that it does appear as though a, a, a ceasefire or a peace could break out any day. If that were to happen, what then would that do to your portfolio of banking shares and generally to, to stocks in Europe? I actually happened to listen to that interview. It was a great interview and I, I thought Sean explained it very well. And I don't agree with his ABN AMRO call, <laughs> but that's another. <laughs> um, yeah, there are better shares in Europe to buy than ABN AMRO, but okay, same valuations. But I agree with him that if, if that is, and that's what we thought Putin wants, he, he kept on saying the only thing he wants, he doesn't want... Ukraine to slip towards the West via EU membership or via NATO membership. And so, you know, that is really what he said was his aim. The problem is, if you listen to guys like Bill Browder, who, re who uh, wrote Red Notice, and he, he basically says you can never believe a word that uh, Putin says. Uh, he seems to be almost be as bad as Trump. You can't believe what he says. So at that time when he started invading uh, Ukraine, I just became too afraid to try and read his mind. And, and also we expected more of the worst and just wanted to see how it goes. But Sean is right. I mean, tactically, he's achieved what he's wanted to, if that is what he wanted to, at least for the short term. And so he could go to the table now and say, okay, this is what I said all along. 
if that is the case and the war ends, key negotiation point is what do we do with sanctions? Do we now you know, reverse the sanctions and does he make that a condition? Then the world will fly because then obviously oil price comes crashing down, uh, commodity prices come down, uh, and the world growth starts picking up again, and you'll have a huge relief rally in markets. And it seems to be happening starting this morning. Um, even the ruble I see is up eight percent this morning, strengthened. Yeah, you know, so that the reserves might be released, but it's very fluid at this stage. You're now going to the stage of a lot of volatility. Yeah. You know, I think the time for the meeting or the day hasn't even been finalized yet. And so you're going to see a lot of volatility. But I think the fact that they're talking is a big step forward. Yeah, especially if it is now accompanied by a ceasefire. Uh, so you can get civilians out. Also, the Ukrainians, they benefit because they don't even saw Poland is offering to send a whole squadron of MiG fighter jets to, to Ukraine. So it's volatile. But I think initially market will rally because there was too much bad news priced in. Well, those MIGs could be Putin's worst nightmare, given that he's got a 40 kilometer long supply exactly. chain that's, that's exactly. bogged down. And if those MIGs uh, do get unleashed on that supply chain, it could be carnage. But you mentioned Bill Browder. I did meet him in London and had a, had a long chat with him after reading his book, Red Notice. And uh, he, he, I guess, would be saying, uh, just be careful about anything that comes out of Russia, given what, what happened with his partner, Magnitsky, who was, of course, uh, uh, murdered. And now we've got the Magnitsky Act, et cetera, et cetera. But from a, from a broader perspective, from, a, from a, a global perspective, the way you've outlined it now is that if the war ends, for whatever reason and with whatever motives, that is going to have a, an immediate impact on Mr. Market. If it doesn't, if, if these peace talks fall down and the war continues, say, for another month, six, nine, 12 months, what then are we likely to see? Yeah, then, then sadly, uh, Europe is, is, uh, will fall back and, and there's a lot of uncertainty then because the risk is the longer the war goes on that Putin does do something stupid. All that, indeed, he says by Poland supplying mix to Ukraine that this is an act of war on NATO and that NATO gets dragged in. And then then really your commodity prices, your oil prices go higher and stay high and your food prices stay high. Um, and then you'll find countries like South Africa actually benefit, Brazil benefits Indonesia. So then we would, if we see this as a, a six-month, nine-month problem and the after effects stay with us for three years, we would actually buy a bit of Brazilian banks. We actually started doing that. They are actually cheap because of, of uh, you know, the president there having been and, you know, all the problems they've had. But Indonesia is an unbelievable country, really benefits from it. And so we would start doing that. And I think the markets would start looking towards emerging markets. The one underlying theme that will remain is that the Fed will hike interest rates. Just an interesting anecdote here or, or piece of history. 73, I think October 73, we saw the Yom Kippur War. And you'll recall that a huge effect on oil prices. Oil prices went up. But the Fed actually, because of the inflationary problems, still hiked interest rates. And it's actually an interesting precedent that at this stage, I think they'll look at inflation 
despite the war, they'll say we first got to protect the dollar and protect consumer savings and still hike interest rates. So the interest rate hikes in the U.S. will continue, um, and that's obviously is good for financial shares and not so good for the rest of the market. In Europe, whether they'll hike interest rates or postpone it, I think they'll postpone it. But even there, if inflation in Europe starts running 7 8%, you can't sit with negative interest rates. So I do think the underlying theme is interest rates will keep trending up. These are real complex issues and uh, perhaps difficult to call, certainly in the short term. But when we have a look at long-term trends, you've been doing a lot of work on decentralized finance, which is not surprising because the whole blockchain revolution has to have massive risk uh, issues for banks, uh, which is your area of speciality. As you're reading it right now, how, how big a risk is it to established banks, given that big organizations find it really difficult to move oil tankers? And if you've got this iceberg sitting there in the, in the form of blockchain, cryptocurrencies, DeFi, uh, how are they dealing with that? Or is there anyone in the world that we can look at that's actually taking it on board? Yeah. Well, there are a few banks that have already really moved fast. JP Morgan is actually one. They've got their own blockchain Onyx for clients to transact on. Uh, Wells Fargo and HSBC have actually got a joint uh, blockchain for clients to transact on. There's a bank in Signature Bank, which... By luck, we were invested in us, not by luck. They, they were one of these guys always on the front foot. And so if it was going to happen, it was going to happen to them. But they got involved and started a, a blockchain and a, um, a, a trading uh, exchange, Signet. Uh, and they are growing the loan book at 30%, also taking um, all within the regulatory framework, are allowing Bitcoin deposits and Bitcoin lending. So there are a lot of banks, uh, so by the way, Visa, MasterCard, the same. Visa has actually really made massive strides in providing uh, for crypto payments on the so-called rails, at, at, you know, its it, its operations. Uh, actually, even Standard Bank have got a, a JV with Shinan Bank in Korea exploring the possibility of you know, a blockchain to facilitate payments. And just by the way, for the uninitiated, what blockchain really does, the technology, um, and obviously it was blockchain one and the second level was through Ethereum where you get smart contracts on, on, on top of the blockchain. What that really does is it facilitates, it allows so-called 24-7, 24-times-7 um, transactions. So there is nothing like I want to do a payment on Friday evening, but the banks are now closed. I can only do it. The bank can only affect the transfer on Monday morning. Uh, blockchain allows, because it's all computer-driven, 24-7. Uh, it also allows immediate. If you make a payment, it's within a few minutes, depending on you know, the, the size. And so things happen quicker uh, and continuously and actually, in theory, at this stage, cheaper. Because that's the challenge to the banks. So your big challenge is, I think, twofold. You, you've highlighted it. The size of the ship is an advantage and a disadvantage. So JP Morgan is such a big ship, it can afford to put $10 billion and did, um, into blockchain. Citigroup have hired 100 engineers, <laughs> 100 engineers, putting them in a room and saying, okay, guys, build us a blockchain. 
uh, well, Capitech actually is different because it's got it's in, in, in innovation. And so, but a smaller bank uh, cannot do that. So you're a large bank, but a large organization also has the, the, the negative, if it's got the wrong board and the wrong management team, you know, it becomes institutionalized. So what we're really testing management as well is, is how institutionalized is your thinking. Uh, they call it uh, cognitive entrenchment, <laughs> that you, know, you are so entrenched in your history that you say, oh, this is, we've seen this before, this is another, it won't happen. Uh, the regulators are saying we can't do anything, so we'll wait for the regulator. Your your teams, your management teams that are on the front foot and, and by nature more entrepreneurial, like let's say first round, and they've already experimented. So they already, they will have created teams that said, have a look at this for us. Your guys who are fighting other problems, potentially some like apps, I don't think so, but let's say you could be so taken up by your boardroom struggles that you're just not getting around to dealing with this new threat. And that's that's a big problem at this point in time. But, but something that I think... A- would occur to anybody listening to you is, hang on, if you can do a transfer through this decentralized ledger, through Bitcoin or, or uh, various other uh, uh, op- um, opportunities through the blockchain, then who needs a bank? Why do you need a bank to be in between you? Uh, uh, Stephen Sidley, who wrote the book Beyond Bitcoin, well, with Simon Dingle, and we actually had a, a breakfast with him and have used him internally for a podcast. And, uh, and obviously, writing the book, they bit out their tongue in cheek and saying, This is the end of banking, although they then put in brackets as we know it. <laughs> but he makes the point that banks have got such large infrastructures that have this high cost base that make it very difficult for them to compete with this low-cost new development on on the blockchain technology. So, look, (laughs) I'm just an analyst. I shouldn't be pro-banks or negative banks. But but so far, what we've observed is is two things. Number one, the whole fintech challenge of the previous three, four years, really galvanized banks into what we call digitalization. So the way of delivering services to clients and the branch, as we know it, is dead. In fact, branches are most probably dead and COVID helped there to get people out of branches and getting used to work via the internet. So the banks, the blockchain is really your middleware, so so, so to speak. So you've got to still take away another layer and you can't, you can't sit with, with, with two, but I do think the banks realize that there's huge focus on reducing costs and reducing your head office space. And so I think they'll continue that. You'll see staff numbers of banks coming down, uh, physical space coming down, and the, the quicker ones will react. But there's a just a second problem. A lot of the costs that we deal with, that we pay for, is due to regulatory overheads. And so the blockchain players or the DeFi players, as they're called the decentralized finance and D-apps, decentralized apps that they build on the blockchain, they've got the advantage of playing outside the regulatory space. So in that space at the moment, you can get very high yields, um, but it's not regulated. And 
So once they get regulated, and the SEC in America has already said, you know, we will regulate you, and by the way, this war will actually accelerate that movement because the, the war shows how money laundering is facilitated on, on the blockchain. And, you know, so, because so, you can't track it. You don't know who owns it. You can't track it. Yeah, so we are obviously hear the, the good ones of guys sending money to Ukraine. But there's also Russian oligarchs who are moving the money very quickly, you know, out of so. Um, but so the regulator is going to step in and and force the exchanges on the blockchain to become part of the regulatory system. And a lot of this massive gearing that you're seeing and the irresponsible products, as the regulator sees it, um, will be curbed, and then costs on the blockchain will also go up. That's so interesting. If the regulator can do it, though, I guess that's the big question. Can can you regulate this? Yes. Uh, in quite a few countries, and I've been keeping a list, but starting with Korea, uh, actually Russia was the first to do blo- uh, By the way, China just banned it. <laughs> you, can't, you can't trade crypto. But Korea has already done it, where, and a lot of other countries have followed where you are. Actually, in South Africa as well, um, the the blockchain exchanges are only allowed to accept the customer after they've KYC'd it. Now, let's know your client, you know, the whole regulatory proof of address, proof of you know, a telephone number, etc. So um Do you think that do you think the Guptas ever did any KY uh know your client forms? Or indeed if they filled them in did they care to put the right stuff there? It's sometimes it, it like, you know, like, it just I, beggars I, belief. I, I cry, I cry, I cry. Yeah, I mean, they're inside the regulation. I mean, we've had ING Bank, Raiffeisen Bank, Sweat Bank, three large banks, Deutsche Bank, being fined hundreds of millions of dollars and billions, in fact, for facilitating money laundering from Russian clients through Latvia, Dendanska uh, in Denmark. Uh, and yeah, when you speak to the management, our systems weren't good enough. This is 10 years ago. And now you've got the Guptas and all those guys having done it uh, with nobody actually seeming to have picked it up. So you're quite right. The regulators uh, try and do what they can. The crooks always find a way around it. And they're always a, a few steps ahead. But Corky, just to just to uh, kind of wrap up, and it has been a fascinating discussion. Thank you. Uh, do you own Bitcoin yourself? I actually did to experiment. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I said to my team as well, guys, to really understand the space, we've got to try and and just invest and see what happens. How easy it is. What are the costs? What what are the alternatives? Um, so, but it's. Oh, it's peanuts. It's literally peanuts. It was to experiment, and immediately we started seeing. If you go into Luna, it's already a five percent charge. It's not. It's not free. You know, you've got to go offshore to Coinbase or one of those to get to lower fees. But yeah, you know, the, the, so I personally think, and all our research shows that the the space is attracting the brightest minds, which, by the way, means it's huge competition. But there will be winners. There will be Apples. There will be Googles. There will be Facebooks. But it's very early to see who they are now. But the coins themselves, Bitcoin, Ethereum, etc., um, of the so-called currencies, 
we think there's no value there. So if you were to invest, you want to invest, if you can predict that Cardano or one of those is going to be a winner because their application is so good, you know, then then those could be winners. But it's it's so early at this stage and the space is so fast moving and the banks will come and attack back. They will they will try and, and learn from their mistakes and see what the guys are doing, attract the best teams across uh, to come and work for them. Um, and, you know, so it, it, it's going to be a very competitive field. So continue to learn about it, continue to understand how it all works, but uh, be careful about investing. Is this your, your message? Yeah, yeah, very, very clearly. Gareth Newham is the head of the Justice and Violence Prevention Program at the Institute for Security Studies. Uh, Gareth, thanks so much for your time today. Ten questions uh, that can hopefully simplify and make understandable what has come out of the uh, July riots report from the South African Human Rights Commission. Was the July unrest a spontaneous outpouring of rage caused by the incarceration of former President Jacob Zuma or something more sinister and calculated? From the information that is available, it is something more sinister and calculated. It was planned. There were people who planned this to take place. Uh, I don't think they foresaw the scale of it, but certainly we had people planning it. And very shortly, the day after uh, Jacob Zuma was incarcerated, we saw very deliberate attempts at shutting down freeways, uh, hijacking up trucks, burning trucks, setting sugarcane fields on fire, and, and protests that were organized um, by people on the back of white buckies, as we saw from various video footage, calling people to protest. Uh, so certainly it wasn't something that was just a spontaneous response. It was definitely a calculated move to try and cause disruption, cause damage, cause chaos uh, with the intent uh, that we saw early on from social media posts to shut South Africa down. They really actually wanted to shut the entire country down, not just KwaZulu-Natal and parts of Gauteng. But then it spread. Um, then you started seeing... Uh, other groups coming to the fore. So as soon as it was quite clear, the police were overwhelmed, battling to move from place to place because of the freeways being shut, because of roads being closed and so forth. Then we saw local criminal networks starting to hit uh, shopping malls, starting to hit uh, warehouses. Um, they would usually come in quite well organized with buckies, angle grinders. They would open up the place, steal the high end or valuable items. And usually about half an hour later, uh, you would see the local population opportunists coming in. And that's when a lot of the, the, the mass looting started to take place. So there are different groups overlapping certain ways over the period of the, the, the violence um, in that week. Were the scenes of anarchy the culmination of infighting between different camps in the ANC? Well, that is what sparked it, I think. Um, certainly those within the ANC who are very loyal to the former president uh, and tend to call themselves the radical economic transformation faction. I've been very vocal about supporting the former president uh, throughout all his trials and tribulations. Um, there were warning of violence in the days running up to incarceration. So there were the gatherings of people outside in Kandla. There was definitely people stating at that point that should the president be arrested, there would be violence. So they were clearly warning that something was going to happen if the president was held accountable for refusing to engage with the Constitutional Court. 
Were any rogue characters or units within state security or crime intelligence loyal to uh, former President Zuma believed to be linked or actively involved in fueling uh, what we saw in July? Yes, it's highly likely, and that, that is believed. Uh, it's one of the reasons why they haven't been arrested. We've seen uh, quite a few hundreds, whatever, thousands of people arrested, and there's about 700 cases enrolled, mostly for either instigating on social media, but also looting and theft and those kinds of crimes. But the orchestrators appear to have had inside information as to the capabilities of the police. They knew how to disrupt the police movements. They also knew of supply chains. They knew of critical infrastructure uh, that was operational in Gauteng and KwaZulu-Natal. And so they used that knowledge to good use. Uh, so it does seem that it's highly likely that either former intelligence or police operatives or even current operatives were involved in the planning and some of the initial instigation. However, they would also be very careful and knowledgeable about how to cover their tracks so as not to leave any evidence available to law enforcement agencies who are then later going to try and link them to these crimes, which is probably why we haven't seen any uh, notable arrests of people for crimes such as um, planning and orchestrating this uh, violence. You've partly uh, answered this already, but I'll ask it again. Uh, did organized crime have a hand in this, as the panel suggests, or was this a uh, fortuitous mixture um, of explosive socioeconomic factors aligning with the whims of criminals and a faction of the ANC? Well, there were alignment of various interests coming to play around the violence. So as soon as it was clear that the police were overwhelmed and unable to respond and prevent uh, the looting from taking place. And this was happening in real time in both traditional media, but also social media. It then became apparent that organized networks, crime syndicates that are operating at a local level, then stepped in, knowing quite well they could hit a warehouse or a shopping center without the police stopping them. And so they started to come to the fore. Uh, they then caused the breach in security that then allowed for mass looting to take place. It is important to recognize that most people living um, in those communities where a lot of this violence took place did not engage in looting. It was large numbers of people, uh, but it was not most people. And also that the violence was contained mostly to Kwazinatal and a few parts of Gauteng. It didn't spread beyond that. Um, so although the socioeconomic factors that encouraged the kind of opportunistic looting we saw in these two provinces, uh, the high levels of unemployment, hunger, people losing their jobs due to COVID would have been a push factor for a large number of the, the opportunistic looters. Um, those factors didn't come into play in other parts of the country. In fact, most of the country did not participate in this kind of uh, violence. Is it fair to say police and intelligence structures failed completely uh, in their mandates? Well, given that uh, their mandates are to ensure national security to prevent and reduce crime, one would say, yes, they did fail in their mandates. Um, certainly, the budgets that are spent on our state security architecture is quite considerable. The police have close to 100 billion rand annually, one of the most well-resourced policing uh, organizations on the continent and compares very well across most developing countries. So, yes, given the vast amount of money spent on police and intelligence, um, this is not really acceptable that they weren't able to uh, get wind of this quickly enough, um, be able to prevent it from happening in the first place. And even where 
they weren't able to prevent certain actions and, and, and uh, attempts at blockading roads and stuff from happening, being able to respond more innovatively and quickly to prevent this from spreading to the extent that it did. Well, that leads to my next question. Could this have been avoided? In other words, is there evidence to suggest that there were warnings from crime intelligence or state security? Well, the evidence before the high-level panel showed that the national intelligence did have indications that there was violence likely in 2021. Um, they did not provide those intelligence reports to the high-level panel, so they can't get the extent to how much evidence or how much intelligence was at play. But certainly, we now know from um, you know, in engagements with people involved or who are victims of a lot of the uh, attacks on shopping center that there was a lot of information that something was brewing, that something was coming up. A lot of the suppliers to big uh, retail outfits and that were actually saying something's going to happen. And in some of these uh, retail outfits actually pulled their security back because they knew that there was no ways they could actually handle this kind of onslaught. So it was not only that there were people publicly threatening violence at least a week before the violence took place outside of Nkandla. There was uh, further information beforehand that was reaching even at least the private sector. So, yeah, certainly this, this is something that could have been foresaw and, and could have been prevented. Just also to mention that we've had mass truck burnings on the N3 Niamoy River Plaza before. We've had mass school burnings in Bawani. We've had days and days of xenophobic attacks. Uh, the most no notorious was back in 2008. So that the South African Police Service does not, on an annual basis, do a, a clear risk, a national risk assessment for when supply chains can be blocked, for when violence can break out and spread, and then orientate its resourcing, training, um, and, re, uh, um, and, and planning towards that likelihood. Because we have had quite large-scale outbreaks of gang violence, taxi warfare, you know, two to 300 people get killed a year in taxi warfare alone. That they're not planning for this was actually uh, an indictment on them. Has our government learned anything out of the July unrest period it didn't or shouldn't already have known? I think they realized how badly the policing capability has deteriorated and how much damage uh, the politicization of our intelligence capability, both at the state security agency and with the police crime intelligence, how, how badly that's damaged that capability. Um, as I mentioned before, the overall police budget, but crime intelligence alone has a 4 billion rand annual budget and over 8,000 uh, officials in that division. So that that huge capability um, wasn't able to respond preventatively is really because of the massive political destabilization that's been taking place at the top of that organization, top of that division for a long period of time since Richard Mbluli was first appointed there um, shortly after President Zuma uh, was sworn in. So I think they've started to realize how badly damaged some of our key state security architecture has been because of state capture, because of the, the nine years of corruption under the former president. Can or might something like this and on this scale happen again? It could happen again. I think, however, that uh, this has been a big wake-up call. There's now, as you've seen, been, uh, some ministers have been moved. Um, the intelligence state security agency is now directly within the presidency. Um, there's a much bigger focus on the capabilities both of the state security agency and of police. There have been threats uh, that have been very quickly responded to subsequent to July. There was another one towards the end of August last year, and apparently there's been a few others. So I think that the 
orientation of our intelligence and our policing has adjusted to uh, trying to prevent this. And so I hope that that uh, will prevent something from that kind of scale happening again. But we really do need to start seeing wholesale institutional reform, both in the state security agency and within the police, if we really want to see um, our abilities to improve public safety overall, not just to prevent large-scale outbreaks of violence like this, but, for example, to turn around our ever-escalating murder rate, which has increased by almost 40% since 2012. Robbery is going up almost 43%. So um, in order not only to prevent this, but to make us safer, we need to see large-scale institutional reform in the criminal justice system. Is the recent sacking or mutual agreement to leave of the National Police uh, Commissioner, Kehla Setole, a positive development for policing in South Africa? Yes, it certainly is. It's a very early first but necessary step. Uh, Kekla Satole was appointed by former President Zuma days before the ANC 2017 elective conference. And for most of his time in office, he's been caught up in the scandal related to the fraudulent procurement of um, communications interception devices called a grabber. There's been two court case findings against him, both a high court uh, ruling and a Supreme Court of Appeal ruling saying that he failed in his duties as a police official and acted in the interests of a faction of the African National Congress instead of the public of South Africa. So he's had a serious credibility problem both within and without the police and has not been able uh, to sort out the leadership crisis facing the South African Police Service since he was appointed. So this is a necessary first step. Should Police Minister, Minister Becky Ele have been booted out as well? Well, the high-level panel talks about a failure at cabinet level and says that the cabinet ultimately should take responsibility. And of course, that was very clear and public when we saw the ministers fighting uh, through the media about what they knew and what they didn't know. Um, so certainly, I think there's a, a bigger issue there. It's not just about the minister of police. Surely he does need to look at his role. Um, but I think in future, there needs to be a lot more focus on for example, what is the role of the minister and what are the roles of the ministers in the security cluster and how do they work better together so that they're all on the same page? And then what is the difference between providing executive oversight and policy direction and interfering in operational matters? I think one of our big problems in South Africa is that untrained ministers with political interests and some of them with not exactly honorable interests linked to corruption, have been directly interfering in the operational affairs of our state security agencies and of our police and of our criminal justice system organizations. Uh, that was rife under President Zuma. And although we have had good people appointed since then to try and uh, stop the deterioration, this needs to be codified in law so that there is very real direct and personal accountability mechanisms um, and sanctions for ministers who overstep the boundaries and uh, contribute to the kind of destruction that we've seen happening during the Zoom years in our criminal justice system. Gareth Newham at the ISS, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Hello and welcome to my weekly discussion with advocate Erin Richards. My name is Michael Apple. We've been discussing all facets of state capture. Now, if you initially think about state capture, it was always the Guptas and then Busasa and then we started looking at the spokes that make up the state capture wheel. We looked at Bain & Company, the consultancy management firm based in Boston. We looked at their lawyers, Baker McKenzie. And now, advocate Aaron Richards, 
What are we uh, going to be discussing today? It's got to do with where the money flows through. Financial institutions, take it away. I think it's time to turn to the banks. Yeah. Um, you know, Mike, there, there are so many people that are asking what I think is a very key question that unfortunately I don't think was actually adequately dealt with at the Zondo Commission. And that is, how did the money get through the banking system? You know, because at the end of the day, if uh, if you can't get money out of the country, there's no corruption, there's no money laundering. You know, the banks are supposed to be the front line um, to to flag, to investigate uh, money laundering, and to close those accounts um, when they flag suspicious transactions. And unfortunately, we just we just haven't seen that that happen. You know, and if you look at um, at Transnet, for example. Um, and you look at Standard Bank, I mean, well, actually, in Transnet, there were multiple banks, HSBC, Nedbank, Standard Bank, all implicated in, in the illicit deals. So, I mean, yeah, let's start with, with Standard Bank. Let's first start at the, the various statutes that govern the banks. It's the Banking Act, it's the Banks Act, yeah. uh, it's the Financial Intelligence Center Act, it's uh, poker and its precker. Take us through what the responsibilities are on the bank in terms of in terms of that legislation. <laughs> Mike, look, we can speak about that all day. I mean, I think where where we should probably start is the Financial Intelligence Centre Act because that yeah. really is the key piece of legislation um, that governs uh, governs um, oversight of of uh, money laundering. Now, what that act does is it establishes the Financial Intelligence Centre, which is a centre that sits inside National Treasury. Mm-hmm. And it basically has an oversight function over the banks, which are accountable institutions, and which are designated responsibilities to flag and report and ultimately stop money laundering. Now, what that act says, I mean, let's just look at the at the framework of how this is supposed to happen. So when an entity opens a bank account, the bank has a duty under that act to verify that entity. If it's a if it's a company, then they must verify the ownership structure. They must then perform due diligence on that entity and on that account. They must understand the business of their client. And they must then perform ongoing due diligence of those accounts. Now, if the bank suspects um, or finds suspicious transactions, it has a duty under that act to report it to the Financial Intelligence Centre. The Financial Intelligence Centre is then supposed to investigate, and if it suspects money laundering, it has a variety of powers to temporarily close accounts, to get monitoring orders, to to keep an eye on those accounts. Um, And it then, if if it conducts an investigation and finds out that there's, you know, suspicions of of money laundering, it will then report either to the the South African Reserve Bank or to the National Prosecuting Authority for, for prosecution. Um, The South African Reserve Bank in turn also has oversight functions and uh, it has the ability to instruct banks to close accounts if it suspects money laundering. Mm. Um, So that's the overarching framework that is supposed to operate, but it seems as though for one or another reason, um, very little or none of this actually happened with these state capture transactions. So the Prevention and Combating of Corrupt Activities Act is if you have actual knowledge or a reasonable suspicion Mm. that something dodgy is going on that you need to report. Um, And that is in terms of, um, that's PRECA, and then POCA, Prevention of Organized Crime Act, is money laundering and the proceeds of crime. Now, as you've pointed out, state capture is not possible 
without this, the, the proceeds of crime flowing through the bank accounts, often destined uh, for bank accounts and companies outside of our borders. Mm. Now, take us to Ian Stinton. Who is he? He did testify before the state capture inquiry in relation to what exactly? All right. So I just want to pick up on one point that you said, which is which is important, is that the threshold for reporting is very, very low. If the banks even so much as suspect or should reasonably suspect that um, that the proceeds of illicit funds are coming into their accounts, they have a duty to report. So that threshold is very, very, very low. You've been listening to the Power Hour brought to you by the team at Biz News.